Jesus once asked some fishermen to leave their nets and follow him. This meant they had to change their identity and their focus. They had to learn the ways of a new work, to connect their hearts to a new mission, to build new relationships, to give their time and resources, and allow a new character to be built within them. We may not be fishermen, but Jesus still calls us to and disciples us in a new life. So, will you leave your net when Jesus asks you? Metamorphosis. What do you think of when you hear that word? Maybe you flash back to high school lit and you get a picture of Franz Kafka's metamorphosis and you get a picture of Gregor lying on his back as a bug. Or maybe you picture a cocoon, a chrysalis that has a butterfly emerging from it, that type of metamorphosis. And that type of metamorphosis is more what we're gonna talk about this morning than Kafka. We're gonna talk about the change that we're expected to have when we come to know Jesus uh, in the dramatic sense of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. So in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, Paul writes, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is at the core of the gospel, this idea of metamorphosis, of being changed from one thing to another. Because Jesus is calling us to a complete change, not just a minor tweak. And transformation is at the heart of the process. We're talking about leaving our nets, doing, quitting what we were doing before, and doing and becoming different people, completely different in many cases from what we were before. Metamorphosis isn't just a tweak, it's a major change. Why would we wanna do that? I always find myself drawn to the why question I mean, I, I kind of understand the thought, but why would we want to have a major life change? I mean, why this idea about dying to ourselves? Why not just try to live a moral life and fit the Jesus thing in where you have room? I'm always interested in the why. And for us to look at the why, I'm gonna take us to the end of the passage and then we'll kind of work backwards. The end of the passage, Paul writes, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So test and approve, it, it's really kind of the process of discovering what God's will is, the process of knowing what God intends. And that seems to be the end point of this metamorphosis, this transformation, is getting to the point where we know and live into what God's will is for our lives. So, what do we mean when we talk about God's will? Well, it can be several things. What should I do in this situation? Yeah, that's, that's a good question that serious Jesus followers ask themselves. Absolutely. 
uh, particularly when we're facing a major life decision. I'm switching careers. What does God have for me? I'm picking a college. Does God have an opinion? I'm thinking about a serious relationship commitment. Does this feel like it's what God has for me? I'm looking for a place of service and on and on and on. It's just kind of the question at this, the next stage of my life, what do you have for me, God? And when we're being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, then God's will for the choices that we need to make will become more apparent to us. So it certainly is that, what's next, God? But it goes beyond that, or maybe it precedes it. I mean, think of the great questions, some of the great questions of life, like, who am I? Why am I here? Do I matter? Those are really important and oftentimes really poignant questions. I mean, the whole who am I thing particularly breaks my heart when I listen to some stories. I mean, I watch people chase all sorts of things that they want to define who they are. And so often, instead of it being a positive thing, those things end up breaking them in so many ways. They're important questions, and it's God's will that you know the answer to those questions. Who am I? Uh, I'm a child of God. I'm created in his image. Why am I here? I'm here to know and to love God and to live into his kingdom. I'm here because God has a plan and purpose for my life at whatever life stage you might be in and whatever condition you find yourself in. Do I matter? You have infinite value, infinite worth, far beyond what your value is to society by what you produce. Those are really important questions, and it's part of God's will for you to understand those in those ways. To be able to confidently know the answer to those questions is the fundamental will of God for your life, who desires everyone to be saved, who sent a son into the world to save the world, and who knows the plans that he has for you. And Paul reminds us that God's will for our life is good and pleasing and perfect. So that's the outcome of transformation, of metamorphosis into the image of Jesus, is knowing who we are, knowing why we're here, knowing what significance we have, knowing what God's will is for the circumstances of our lives and living through that. That's the why. So now let's go back and talk about how we get there. Beginning of the passage, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. It's a little bit hokey, but whenever you see the word therefore, you always need to stop and ask, what is it there for? Um, therefore is a connecting word. So basically, what Paul is doing at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, is connecting what he's going to say to the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's going to sum this up and say, because of all those things that I just talked about, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So he talked about the mercy of God in chapters 1 through 11. A lot of stuff going on there, but that's essentially what, what he's boiling down to. I've given you 11 chapters of why God is merciful. So now because of that, well, what does God's mercy look like? Let me quote a couple of passages from earlier in Paul's letter from chapter 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. Verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are some of the things that Paul talks about as being the mercies of God, which he's explained for 11 chapters. So now, because of those things, we need to respond to that. And how do we respond to that? Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And that's kind of revolutionary on a number of different levels. First of all, referencing the body in a positive sort of way would have been sort of shocking to Greeks because Greeks grew up with Plato's philosophy. And for Plato, it's all about your spirit. Your body is an inconvenience. They used to say, soma sema esteem. The body is a tomb, and what people need to do is set their spirits free from the body that they're imprisoned in. They long to escape their bodies. That's never been a part of Jewish or Christian theology. And I get it, not everybody's thrilled with the bodies they got. Lots of people wish that they had something different, but our bodies are important because that's where we live our lives. I mean, what can you do without your body? Not much. It's not like you can send your spirit to work while your body sits at home on the couch. And it'd be nice to send my spirit to the grocery store at nine o'clock to get ice cream so I didn't actually have to get up and go, but it doesn't work that way. What we do with our bodies matters. Our bodies can tolerate a lot for a while, but sooner or later, some of the things that we do catch up with us. Anxiety, depression, substance abuse, those things will all eventually take a toll on us, on our bodies. Paul also makes it clear earlier in chapter 3 that sin or bad behavior or the stuff that we do that isn't good for us reveals itself in and through and with our bodies. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of the viper is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's all body stuff that is how evil sort of is manifest in us. That's why there's the call to give our bodies back to God. So that instead of having, you know, tolerating sin and disease and bad things in our bodies, so that our bodies and our actions can be characterized by right living, by God honoring living. It's kind of interesting that in evangelical circles, we generally talk about giving our hearts to God, but we don't really talk about giving our bodies to God. And that's what Paul is getting at here. God wants all of us. And that kind of echoes Jesus in the great commandment that God wants our, um, he calls us to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, our strength, everything about us. And then in verse six, uh, chapter six, verse 13, Paul says, instead of giving your body to these things, give every part of yourself, your whole body to God 
as an instrument of righteousness. So what we do with our bodies is really, really important. So how do we then do positive things with our bodies? How do we counteract the evil that we find? So let, let's pick up some of the things that Paul talks about and see how we can kind of turn that around. So talking about our mouths, what do we say? I mean, what do you find coming out of your mouth most frequently? Do you curse people or do you bless people? Do you build people up or do you tear people down? Are we complainers? I mean, how easily do we slide into complaining or talking about what we don't like? I mean, how many of us can give you four things I don't like about any subject that might come up? And if that's who we are, then oftentimes we miss the opportunity to be a blessing to people. Can we be counted on to tell the truth, even if it makes us look bad? And sometimes when it comes to what we say, I think we focus on the wrong things. I mean, swear words, whatever. I know a lot of people who would never use a four-letter word, but they'll gossip about people, or they'll tear them down behind their backs, or just constantly complaining. And for my money, my experience, gossip and complaining has done far more damage to people than swear words ever will. And by the way, I, I didn't just say it's okay for you to swear. I did say you should stop talking badly about other people, and we'll see which one of those sticks. So let's present our mouths and the things that we say to God for his glory. And then let's think about how do ideas, how do images enter into us, mostly through our eyes and our ears? How do we control what's going to impact us? Your eyes, what are you looking at? Some things are productive and some things are counterproductive. I think the fruit of social media will be your level of contentment and peace. Some things will produce good things in you. Some things that you see will not produce good things in you. So what are you looking at? And then what are you looking for? Because I think a lot of the time we have a tendency to see what we're looking for. If you're looking for people's faults, you'll find them. But you'll also miss the good in people. If you're looking for people to disappoint you, they will, but you'll miss all the people that will follow through. What are you looking for? Because that's generally what you'll see. And how about your ears? Who or what are you listening to? I mean, we say that someone has my ear or I have their ear. That's a powerful position because that means that they're gonna listen to you or that you'll listen to them and you will become like the people that you listen to. So who are you listening to? And we can just keep going on and on, different parts of our bodies. I mean, he talks about our feet, we can talk about hands, but, but evaluate how your body is reflecting your commitment to Jesus and whether or not it really demonstrates the level of commitment that you'd like it to have. So present your bodies. And then Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. What is worship? Um, lots of times we think about worship as singing, and it can be, um, but I don't think worship is necessarily that. I, I really think worship is about focus. I think worship is about posture. And the thing that we worship, and we all worship something, the thing that we worship is what our ultimate allegiance belongs to. So it's a call 
for us to take our ultimate allegiance and place it with God, to worship God. That's our true improper worship, to present our bodies, to present our whole selves to God in the posture of acknowledging our allegiance to him. The word that's translated, the phrase that's translated there, true and proper, um, comes from one Greek word, logikos, from which we get our word logical. So it can mean that your reasonable service of worship, the rational service of worship, the only thing that makes sense, and all of those things are fine with Paul. In light of everything that God has done for you, everything in light of what God has done for me, the only rational thing is for us to worship him is for us to present ourselves to him. That's what Paul is getting at. And Paul uses pretty technical sacrificial language from that, just straight up out of the Old Testament, that we're supposed to present ourselves as a sacrifice. And what Paul is not saying is that, you know, we need to kill ourselves. That's certainly not what Paul is saying. Not that kind of sacrifice, because it's a living sacrifice. And what does a living sacrifice look like? A living sacrifice characterizes how we offer ourselves to God throughout our entire lives. So we worship God. We offer ourselves to God in our relationships. We worship God. We offer ourselves to God in how we do business and how we treat other people and what our goals are. Those are all opportunities to worship God, to acknowledge that our behavior is because of who our ultimate allegiance belongs to. And if we think about, you know, sacrificing ourselves for God, for the greater good, for other people, maybe your first thought is, man, that's going to cost me something, or that might be unfair, or I might even get used. And all of those, I suppose, are possible. But think about it this way. God is creating a community of love and grace. What if everyone treated you that way? I mean, wouldn't you prefer that everyone approached you with love and grace and kindness? I know I would. So sometimes it's easy to think about what could go wrong instead of what's going right, and that we're building a community of people that is characterized by grace and love and mercy and kindness. Then Paul goes on to write, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, the, the, The force of do not be conformed is really stop allowing yourself. Stop allowing yourself to be like the culture around you. Stop allowing yourself. There's this bit of agency in there. Yeah, stuff happens to us. That's just life. But we also have some control over what we participate in and what we allow ourselves to be. And I think it's true that we're taught to think and react a certain way, um, either by our family of origin or the history that we've had, just our outlook, our, you know, whatever. But the heart of the gospel is that we can be changed, that our reactions can be changed, that our frame of reference can be changed, that the things that we, conform, that we are conformed to those things can be changed. Don't conform to the world. Stop allowing yourself to be like that. Instead, be transformed. Metamorphosis. It's the word that's there. And how do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. We can change our minds. 
the Holy Spirit can do a new work in us. Now, this has been a Christian idea for forever, and there's been some really fascinating work done on uh, neuroplasticity, and I want you to watch just a really short clip of the video that will demonstrate how this works. For many years, scientists have thought the brain was fixed and hardwired and couldn't change after childhood. But recent research shows this is simply not the case at all, and we know that people's brains can change well into old age. In fact, our brains change every day. Our brains are considered to be plastic or pliable, and this has helped neuroscientists coin the term neuroplasticity. So how does neuroplasticity work? Well, think of your brain as a huge city with thousands of roads and lots and lots of traffic. Some of these roads are faster than others, with lots of traffic moving quickly and easily. These roads with all their traffic represent our established ways of thinking, feeling and doing. Every time we think, feel or do something in the same way, we strengthen this road, making it faster and it becomes quicker and easier for our brains to travel this pathway. But by contrast, if a road wasn't built well in the first place, or becomes blocked or we think, feel or do something differently, we start to use a different pathway. If we keep using that new road, our brains begin to use this pathway more and more and this new way of thinking, feeling, or doing becomes automatic. In the meantime, the old pathway gets less and less use and weakens. In other cases, it may be possible to repair or rebuild a block pathway. This process of rewiring your brain by strengthening existing pathways, making new ones, weakening old ones, and repairing broken ones is neuroplasticity in action. So that's pretty cool. By changing our actions, we can transform our minds. By putting new things in, we can kill off old pathways that led to destructive behaviors. We can learn to do positive things. We can be transformed. Our mind can literally be renewed. And one way to think about this that we've been talking about a lot lately because it's so important to understand is neuroplasticity can also be another expression of repentance. Because repentance is to stop thinking and acting in one way 